following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So last week, we saw the beginning of Gideon's story. We saw how God called Gideon and he reassured Gideon with some signs to authenticate what God was saying to him. We saw how the Midianites have been oppressing Israel, sending in these bands of raiders to wipe out the Israelite crops and cattle, these sporadic raids that they sent in. And then eventually the Midianites rally their whole army, rally their forces and get ready for a wholesale attack invasion of Israel, ready to take complete control of the Israelite towns and villages and settlements. And so in response to this, Gideon gathers up the army of Israel, gathers up God's people and they take their place ready to fight against the Midianites. So as this chapter opens, you have Gideon and his men at this place called the Spring of Horeb. And you have the Midianite camp a little bit further north in the Valley of Jezreel. They're poised to strike and the battle is just about to happen. Now just before the Israelites launch the strike against Midian, God intervenes. And he speaks to Gideon. And he says this in verse 2. Very succinct little statement. He says, you have too many men. Now Israel has about 32,000 men. And what you learn in the next chapter is that Moab, the Midianites, they have 135,000 men. So Israel is already well outnumbered. Israel is already in trouble. The odds are stacked against them. And it's bizarre for God to come along and say, you have too many men. If anything, Gideon would have been expecting him to say, you don't have enough. I need to increase the troops a little bit. But he says, you have too many men. And the reason he gives is the rest of verse 2. Verse 2 really is the critical verse for understanding this passage, unlocking this whole chapter. Verse 2, God says, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. So what God's really concerned about is Israel's pride. What he's really concerned about is that if he sends Israel into battle as it is, they may defeat the Midianites and they will turn around and say, haven't we got a great army? Haven't we got fantastic soldiers? Didn't we execute a fantastic battle plan? And God would be sidelined and, and God's name would not be honored or glorified and Israel would boast in their own strength. And God's not going to allow that to happen. It's not because God's insecure. It's not because God needs a little self-esteem boost and he wants the credit for the battle. It's because of his own glory. Literally, that phrase that God speaks to Gideon, he says, lest Israel glorify itself against me. This is what God is wanting to prevent. Israel glorifying itself against me. This is the problem that God has with pride. It's the problem God has with human pride. It's not just that we puff ourselves up. It's that pride diminishes the glory of God. The pride takes away glory from God and it puts the glory on us. And it elevates our own glory. It makes us look like something great when we rely on our abilities. We boast in our own strength. We think we're something amazing. It takes the spotlight away from God towards us. And throughout the Bible, God is always fiercely protective of his own glory. He's not going to yield his glory to another. He will protect his glory at all costs. And that's what he's doing here. That's why he's not going to let Israel boast in their own strength against him. So he says, you've got too many men. And, and God undertakes this dramatic troop production. The first thing he does is he says, Gideon, you can say, 
to any of your men who are fearful. Anyone who's trembling with fear, anyone who's a bit scared, you can tell him to go home. And 22,000 men take off. I probably would have been among them, to be honest. I mean, it would have been an easy out, wouldn't it? A lot of guys would have been pretty scared about this. I probably would have taken the first opportunity to take off. So 22,000. Now he's down from 32,000 down to 10,000. And God's not even finished. The next thing God says is, Now I want you to go and send the 10,000 that remain. Send them down to the river. Tell them to have a little drink. So Gideon sends them down. And there's two groups now that emerge. One group uh, crouch down and bring the water up in cupped hands and lap it like this. The other group of guys kneel down and put their faces in the water and drink like that. And God says to Gideon, now tell all of the men who knelt down to drink to go home. Some people argue that the, what God's doing here is that he, he's trying to choose the ones that are more vigilant because the guys that were crouching down and drinking like this, they could still look around and see where the enemy was coming from. I'm not really sure about that because, again, when you come back to verse 2, the whole point of what God's doing is reducing Israel's strength. It doesn't make a lot of sense for him then to choose the strong ones and leave the weak ones. The whole point is he doesn't care about Israel's strength or vigilance. God's wanting to demonstrate his own power and his own glory. So I tend to think this is pretty arbitrary. It's a way of weeding out a significant number of Israelites. That's what God's wanting to do. And he does. The guys that kneel down, put their faces in the water, 9,700. And so God says, you can send those guys home. So they leave and Gideon's down to 300. 300. I mean, just, just take a minute and imagine Gideon watching those guys walk away. Watching thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of your best warriors, able-bodied, armed warriors, just walking home. Gideon needed more men, and he loses thousands. Just imagine that sense of hopelessness he must have had. Imagine that sense of absolute powerlessness and despair, probably frustration, probably anger at God, right? God had called him unmistakably to this. God had called him to defeat Midian, and just when he's poised to do it, God decimates his troops and reduces them to 300. Now it's a battle of 135,000 Midianite warriors against 300 of Gideon's men. And God probably knew that Gideon was a bit discouraged at this point. So in the middle of the night, he gives him this encouraging sign. He says to Gideon, go down into the camp, go down into the Midianite camp and listen. So Gideon and his servant go down there and they overhear these Midianites talking. And one of them's had a dream about this loaf of barley bread. Barley bread's, by the way, very ordinary kind of bread, symbolizing Gideon, very ordinary kind of guy. This loaf of barley bread that rolls into the camp and knocks over the Midianite tent. And this Midianite soldier said, man, this can be none, none other than Gideon. He's going to take us all out. God's going to give us into the hands of the Israelites. And Gideon hears this, and he's strengthened, and he's encouraged, and he realizes God is with him. God is outworking his plan. So Gideon goes back to the camp, goes back to the Israelites, and he says, okay, here we go. Let's do it. Here's the battle plan. And under, presumably under God's direction, Gideon gives his men this battle plan. He lines them up, separates them into three groups of 100. Remember, he's only got 300 soldiers. So now he creates three groups of 100, and he goes around, and he gives each man a trumpet, and a jar. Each jar had a little torch in it. Trumpet and a jar. These are the weapons of mass destruction that Gideon and his men had. Trumpets and jars. It was just bizarre. I mean, even, even beyond the fact that these were not weapons at all, they're actually prohibitive because now you're holding a trumpet, you're holding a jar. How are you going to get to your sword? Even if they had swords, now they can't use them. So now you've got 
135,000 vigilant Midianite soldiers against 300 guys holding trumpets and jars. It's, it's almost like you get the sense God is enjoying this. He's just taking some kind of humor in decimating Gideon's troops. And, and God's just, God just seems to love stacking up the odds against himself, doesn't he? It's like he's sitting there scheming, thinking, what else can I do? I know. I'll wipe them down to 300. And then I'll give them trumpets and jars. God's kind of almost fine. Not that he enjoys Gideon's suffering, but God is just stacking up the odds to make this absolutely impossible because he wants it to be unmistakable that this is not going to be Israel's victory. This is not going to be through the strength of their army. This is not going to be by might or by power. It's going to be by the Spirit of God. This is the message God wants them to hear loud and clear. So God doesn't mind reducing Gideon's army to a position of profound weakness so that his pride would be stripped away, his self-reliance would be stripped away, and God's strength and God's glory would just shine through the whole situation, which it does. See, this is why weakness is so valuable. It's not fun. It's never pleasant, but it is so precious. It's so precious to God. Because when you're in a position of weakness, when we experience weakness in our lives, things that we rely on just get taken away from us. Things that we depend on for our security and our identity and our accomplishment, they get taken away from us. Our achievements, our abilities, our successes, our sources of security, they just get systematically taken away. And God places us in this position of weakness. And in that space, God is most able to hack away at our pride. In that place of weakness, God is most able to hack away at our ego and our insistent self-reliance and our self-dependence and our self-promotion. Sometimes God has to put us in this position of weakness in order to bring us face to face with just how dependent we've been on our own strength and put us in a place where we have to exercise radical trust in him because he's all we've got. He's the only one we've got left. I was talking a while ago to Graham Burt, who's part of our church family here, and he was telling me a story from early in his career in advertising. He was working for Saatchi and Saatchi, doing really well. Graham's a really creative guy, really great designer. He was doing well in Saatchi and Saatchi and making a whole lot of money. He gave me permission to tell the story, by the way. And a friend talked to him one day and gave him a really direct word and said, you concern me because you act like the amount of money you're making is normal, and it's not. And Graham said that that just exposed him, just exposed this pride and this arrogance that was in his life and how reliant he'd been on his own sense of self-promotion and self-advancement. He was a Christian, but in that moment he realized that he had just been drawn into the allure of career success and the allure of making more money, and that had become his obsession. And he was so convicted by that word from his friend that he resigned from Saatchi's. And he spent a few months just doing nothing. Each morning he'd get up early, and he'd go for a long walk with one of his kids on his shoulders, and he'd just talk to God. And one morning he'd been reading in his Bible the story of Abraham and how God established Abraham and how God blessed Abraham. And as he walked that morning with one of his kids on his shoulders, he just found himself saying to God, God, I don't know the difference between self-promotion and God-promotion. And he just handed his life back over to God again. He surrendered his career, surrendered his talents and his gifts to God, surrendered his own sense of self-advancement to God. 
and just said, God, if it's going to happen, I want you to establish me. I don't want to establish myself. He got back home after that and the phone was ringing. It was someone offering him an advertising contract. He got a couple of little jobs and then through some contacts of some friends, he was offered a major government advertising contract. He had the opportunity to meet that prospective client and talk to him. And as he had that conversation, he decided to share with this prospective client the story of what God had been doing in his life over the past few months. The guy wasn't a Christian. But Graham shared with him how God had humbled him, how he used to be an arrogant, proud, he actually used another word, which I can't repeat, so-and-so, and how God had brought him down and humbled him, and how Graham now believed that the work he was possibly being offered was the result of God's work in his life. And the guy looked at him and said, you feel better getting that off your chest? And he told him to leave. And he didn't get the job. The guy thought he was a complete idiot. And Graham reflected on that, and he was, he was okay. He was comfortable being humiliated like that because he saw that as part of God's work in his life too, of destroying his pride. And he only wanted the work that God would bring him. And many times after that, when Graham's been offered work, he's told prospective clients the same story. Non-Christians, but he's told them the same story of how he used to be arrogant and God humbled him, and that's the reason that you know, he's receiving the work that he's receiving. And he does that, he said, not to exercise any kind of false humility, but in order to prevent himself being consumed with the pride and the arrogance that once got a hold of his life, and to keep him humble and to keep him grounded and to keep him utterly dependent on the grace of God. See, that's real strength and weakness, eh? In his weakness, God's strength is being made known in his life, and he's allowing God's strength to shine through. Now, that situation is a little bit unusual because Graham chose to allow himself to be weakened like that. He allowed himself to be broken and to be humbled like that and to be vulnerable about it. Often, we don't choose weakness. Often, it just comes looking for us, right? It just finds us. You might be in a place this morning of weakness. Weakness is anything that we do that represents a loss of strength and power in our lives, that reduces us to powerlessness and weakness where we don't have the control that we once had. It could be short-term stuff, could be long-term, could be relationship bust-up, could be your finances, get stuffed up, could be a health issue, could be a long-term health issue, could be anything that happens that reduces our strength and our power. And we hate being in those places. It's not fun, it's not comfortable. Everything in our flesh screams out against it and we do everything we can to get out of it. But guys, we've just got to recognize that this place of weakness, this is the crucible where God does his best work in our lives. This is the furnace where God refines our character. It's out of weakness that God brings life and strength and hope. Isn't that what he did with Jesus? You look at the cross, you see a picture of weakness. Jesus embodied it. Utter weakness. Tortured and mocked and beaten and ultimately crucified. He is a picture of weakness and yet out of that weakness... God brings life. Out of that weakness, God demonstrates his strength. Out of the foolishness of the cross, we see God's wisdom. Out of the shame of the cross, we see God's glory and God's honor. Out of the dishonor of what happened, we see the strength, the hand of God being revealed to bring life and to bring hope and to bring faith and to bring healing. And God is still doing that in our lives as we follow Christ. God is going to allow us at times to experience weakness because it's there that he refines us. Don't be so obsessed with getting out of your weakness that you miss what God's doing right in the middle of it. 
I've experienced some weakness this year. I went into this year thinking it was going to be a good one. It's been a tough one. It's been hard. I've faced some challenges, some challenges in ministry, some setbacks, and some hardships and some difficulties. And it's taken a toll. And I've gone through some real personal anguish. But you know, honestly, these last few months as I look back, and I don't say this with any sense of cliche, but I believe God has drawn me closer to Him than I've been in a long time. And I find myself falling into conversation with God more naturally now than I have for ages. I'm finding, I'm reading scriptures now, and they're just leaping off the page at me like they haven't. Psalms that I've read for a long, long time, and suddenly they're coming alive. Worship songs that we sing, and suddenly it's like the words just jumping off the screen at me. I'm journaling now. Started that back up to try and capture the thoughts and feelings and prayers of what God's doing in my life. Because in my weakness, God is demonstrating His strength and His power. I don't say this out of any sense of piety, but just because this is, this is the journey I'm on. This is what God is doing in my life. It's in our weaknesses that God brings forth His strength. And I'm not saying we shouldn't take steps to deal with the situations and we, there's not things that we can do, of course. I'm not saying just, just sit with it forever. But don't miss what God's doing in your weakness. Don't miss what God's up to. Because this is the place where He works. What's He doing in the midst of the weakness that you're experiencing? What's He showing you? What's He revealing to you? Maybe He's revealing His love and His grace and He's wanting you to come to a deeper appreciation of how secure you are in His hand. And He's allowing other things to be stripped away for a while. So that what you've got is His grace and He's teaching you that that grace is sufficient for you. Maybe He's putting His finger on pride and He's showing you some of your own self-reliance, your own self-dependence. Maybe He's showing you something that's that's not great. And he's encouraging you to work on an area of your character. Maybe he just wants you to be in a place of real trust and real dependence in him. Just like the Israelites, he wants you to be in this space where you have nothing and no one to depend on but him and his strength. That's a good place to be. It's a painful place to be, but it's a good place to be. That's just where Gideon was. They didn't have anyone else. They certainly didn't have their own strength, didn't have their own firepower. They only had God. And Gideon circled around that Midianite camp and set up the three groups of 100 men. And they all shouted out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And they smashed their jars and they blew their trumpets and it created such a massive sound that the Midianites must have thought there were more of them than there actually were. And the Midianites were thrown into chaos. God threw them into absolute chaos. They turned on each other. Started killing each other. It's this beautiful irony in the story where the, the Israelites stand above the camp of Midian and they all shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and they never use their swords. The only swords that are used in that story are the Midianite swords against each other. The Israelites never even have to fight. They just stand there. You know what they actually you know what they have to do is in verse 21. Here's the one thing that they did. While each man held his position around the camp. All the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. What do the Israelites have to do? Hold their position, stand there, and watch God work. That's it. Just had to stand. Reminds me of Paul's words in Ephesians 6, where he says, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you can take your stand against the evil one, and after you have done everything, to stand. If you're going through weakness this morning, what God asks of you is just to stand. 
You don't have to try and be brave. You don't have to try and be strong. You don't have to try and pretend. You don't have to try and cover it up. You don't have to fight against it. Just stand. Just stand in God's grace. Stand in His strength. Stand anchored in relationship with Him and open yourself up to what God is doing. Just stand. And if you know someone who's going through weakness, maybe things are fine with you, but you know someone right now who's going through weakness, you can help them stand. Don't give them cliches and platitudes. You just help them to stand. Just love them and encourage them, and you can be a strength to them. I went and visited a friend this week who I've mentioned him to you before. He's, he's been struggling with chronic back pain for years and years and years. Young guy, young father. He's got three little kids, but his back is just is, is messed up. He had an injury years ago. He's had two surgeries so far. They haven't been successful. His back's getting worse. His joints are now becoming arthritic. He's looking at the prospect of a third surgery now, but that's got huge risks associated with it. And he just got to a point earlier last week where he got to the end of himself. He just could not go on, couldn't face it. And at one in the morning, his wife sent out an email to a few friends and just said, hey, if you're free tomorrow night, could you just come around and just be with us and pray for us? So I went around that next night and... It was just heartbreaking hearing him share of how he's at a point now of having to give up dreams that he had for his life, give up dreams of where he thought he was going to be and what he thought he was going to be doing and maybe giving up dreams of ever working full-time again. And I sat there with him and, and shared a few things and tried to encourage him. But, you know, honestly, as I was talking to him, I just felt like my words were falling flat. I didn't really have any wisdom. We're going back and forwards, but nothing was really resonating. And I, I said to him, after a while, I said, you know, I, I kind of feel sitting here, I feel like one of Job's friends, you know, like I'm dispensing all this wisdom to you, but you know, the best thing I can do is just pray for you. I don't have any answers. Best thing I can do is just pray for you. And so I sat down and prayed with them. And that was where the power was in bringing him to Jesus. That's where the strength was. That's what was special. That's what meant something to him. Not my wise words, not my kind of expert answers. I didn't have any. But just praying. This is what's meaningful to people that you know who are going through weakness, is your presence and your prayers. Just show up. Just be there. You don't have to have expert answers. Just be with them and just sit with them and listen to them and pray for them. And that's helping them stand. That's helping them stand firm in the midst of what they're going through. Be attentive to it around you. There'll be times that you need others in your weakness. You be there for those you know who are going through it at the moment. Well, many centuries after Gideon's day, there was another guy who was also a follower of God who went through some profound weakness, Paul of Tarsus. And we think of Paul as this imposing spiritual giant. The reality is he was an embarrassment to most people, to most of the cities. He was nothing like the great moral philosophers of his day who toured around from city to city. He didn't have their pedigree. He didn't have their communication skills. Paul was not an impressive communicator. He didn't have their content. They would talk about the great traditions of Greek philosophy. Paul talked about a crucified Messiah. It was an embarrassment. He was laughable. He was even a laughing stock to some of his churches, like the church in Corinth, that wanted a super apostle. They wanted him to boast about how great he was. They wanted him to be an apostle they could be proud of, and he wasn't. But at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul does some boasting. The Corinthians have been saying, come on, Paul, we want you to boast. Boast about your credentials. Boast about your philosophies you can espouse. We want to be impressed by you. And so Paul says, okay, you want me to boast? I'm going to boast. And he gives them in chapter 12 this whole catalog of weaknesses. He says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast of my weakness. You can just hear them cringing. 
as he goes through all this stuff. And he gets to the end of it and he says this in chapter 12, verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How many of us can say that? I delight in weaknesses. We don't delight in weaknesses. How many of us can honestly say, when I am weak, then I am strong? We just live like, when I'm in control, I'm strong. When I'm self-reliant, I'm strong. When things are humming, I'm strong. When I've got everything together, I'm strong. Scripture says exactly the opposite. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Only then. Because then Christ's power rests on us. Because then Christ's power is made perfect. Not in our strength, but in our weaknesses. And so if you're weak this morning, if you're in a position of weakness... It's okay. It's okay to be weak. You don't need to run from it. You don't need to fight and rage against it. You don't need to smother it with a whole lot of cliches and a happy face. You can just stand. Just stand still for a while and watch what God does. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be weak because your strength is not in you. Your strength is not in your ability to control the situation. Your strength is in the blood spilled from Jesus Christ. Your strength is in the body of Christ broken for you. Your strength is in the crucified and risen Messiah, Jesus. And he's got all the strength that you need. So we can delight in our weaknesses. Because it's then that Christ's power truly rests on us. Let's pray. God, I imagine from the outside that this looks like a room of pretty together people. But uh, I know, Lord, that if we scratch below the surface, there's all kinds of pain and struggle and suffering and weakness that's here. And God, we just, just bring ourselves to you as we really are this morning. Not as we want to pretend to be, just as we are. We come to you, Jesus, in our weakness. We just sit here before you, God, just exposed and open and humble and vulnerable, and real. And we ask that you would work in and through the weaknesses that we're experiencing this morning, that you might make your power known, that you might make your glory known, that you'd work in our lives, in our brokenness, in our weakness. May we know your grace and your peace more truly and fully. Thank you that we don't have to pretend anymore. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you that it's him who has our strength. Amen. Amen. I'm going to finish this morning with communion. And uh, can I just encourage you that as you take communion this morning, just allow God to bring you face to face with your own weakness, whatever it is you're going through. And just be attentive to what the Spirit of God is doing in the midst of your weakness. Find your strength in Christ, not in yourself. Be drawn back to that this morning. We'll listen to a song as we take communion, and then I'll come and finish our service in prayer. You can move to the tables when you're ready. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit 
www.shore.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.